Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 134, The Erotic Embrace of Life and Meditation. This week, we speak with Zen monk Vidyudeva about his monastic training with Zen master Steve Hagen, and also about the paradox in Zen between one's life and meditation. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vince Horn. I'm here in the studio live with Ryan Oki and our special guest, Vidyudeva. And we even have an audience in yeah. the studio. Two lovely ladies in here. So you might hear shouting on occasion. You might hear cat calls. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> and we might include laugh tracks with this. If we're trying a whole new thing here. We're going to up our game. Buddhist Geeks Live. Buddhist Geeks Live, but not live. <laughs> so yeah, we have Vidyudeva, someone actually we've known for a while, but haven't got a actually sit down and speak with you're uh, friends with Stuart Davis who we've interviewed yeah. and um, I met you at the Dharma Palooza back in the day oh uh, 2004 yep yeah nice. long time ago so that's the first time I got to meet you and um, luckily we heard you were in town so uh, Vid is actually in our studio which is cool because usually we're interviewing people over the phone hmm. so Vid you have been a Zen priest for how long since 1999 99 it's quite a while all right and uh, you're teacher or the person who ordained you is Steve Hagen. Yes. And he's author of Buddhism Plain and Simple. Yes. Which I read that a long time ago, actually, when I first started practicing. And then I later found out that so many people absolutely love that book. It's like on the top of their list. Yeah. yeah. I so, hear about him all the time. Yeah. A lot of different people come into the Dharma through Steve Hagen. Yeah. Which is cool. I was happy to know I got some good Dharma when, <laughs> when I first started practicing. Yeah. So that's got to be one of the, just a quintessentially one of the best beginning books. And you're involved with a couple of groups, at least Integral Spiritual Center yep. and I Evolve. Yep, exactly. And um, so, you and I read your bio, and you've been actually involved with quite a number of different contemplative yeah. organizations and teachers. So, yeah. I think I'd just let you say a little bit about what you think is meaningful and important to you and your history as a practitioner, and then particularly about mm. your journey as a Zen priest. Yeah, yeah. Let me maybe even just give a small plug for that book, Buddhism, Plain and Simple. And I'll give you a little story that goes along in that community, that lineage. So Katagiri, Katagiri Roshi, who was my teacher's teacher, and he originally came here to help out with the teaching with Shinryu Suzuki. So he eventually, Katagiri, ended up in Minnesota, Minneapolis, with a Zen center. So the story is that there was a time he was sitting around, he was talking, and people wanted to know more of the meaning of the garb he was wearing, the robes he was wearing, right? The meaning and the significance. And this has to do even with the way that the teaching has evolved through history and through culture. So he takes this like very, very most outer garment in his hand, right? And it's the Okesa, and it's India. This is kind of with the, with the Buddha. And then he goes... And he takes, there's two here, I may actually forget which order they're in, but he takes another, he goes deeper 
reaches back deeper and then the okay so he takes a hold of fabric and he pulls it out he shows it to them and it's a kimono it's japan and then he digs even deeper and he pulls out the kuromo and it's china and then he digs even deeper right like right down to his bare chest and he pulls out just like the the shred of a t-shirt he says america <laughs> right so you get these all these layers of meaning and all these kind of teachings and all these rituals but like if you went right back to the bare chest right by the beating heart of what it is to be human and you were to pull that out as america what would that teaching be like right back to that simplicity of the t-shirt in the dharma and i think that's buddhism plain and simple a story that steve told often is that katagiri would tell his students i'm japanese and i i can only show you my way which is the japanese way but you will have to find your own way here in america and it won't be my way it will have to be something new so where i trained we actually don't wear the kimono or the kuromo it's just the okesa and that's the like the black outer yeah. robe yeah so i'd like to know a little bit about what brought you to become a zen priest to take those vows and then what changed in what 2004 were yeah you're not doing that yeah. particular training anymore i was involved in a fairly severe accident an intentional accident it was intentional at the time it was an accident later when i was 18 kind of doing part of my martial arts training thing and got really hurt so recovering from that kind of not being able to walk and just being laid up in bed recovering i realized kind of how crazy what i had done had been and yet how sane it seemed to me at the time that i was doing it and i was able to kind of touch some of just the layers of deep belief deep perception deep seeing and being in relationship to the world that were related with that kind of ignorance that kind of craziness and how at the time i couldn't see them at all and i was deeply suspicious that whatever had led me to that accident that injury that that was the only aspect of that functioning in my life <laughs> i was pretty sure there's probably a lot more where that came from that i'm totally unaware of and that i can't see at all and it was it was a bit uh, sobering it's a bit humbling and i really was interested in knowing what that was i was interested in knowing what that right relationship with life was that right relationship with myself that right relationship with others ever since i was young i'd been in love with martial arts and there's definitely a strong tradition in there of meditation and i'd always shied away from the meditation because i had learned to throw a punch maybe four or five times with different teachers but like literally the teacher sees what i'm doing and just they could just about cry or tear their hair out right it's just like oh you have so many bad habits right you'd be better off if you knew nothing at all it's going to be so much work to get you back to the point where i can teach you anything about how you should actually be throwing this punch and i thought wow that's just moving my body around in space 
what would happen if I kind of veered off in a meditative tradition into some spaces? What kind of bad habits could be formed there? What kind of wrong relationship and kind of misshapen forms could my life be taking? And I was kind of really tentative to learn meditation. I wanted to make sure that the meditation teacher that I was learning from was had some level that I could sense. It was kind of just an inner sensing of real authenticity. And I looked and I looked and I looked and I couldn't, I couldn't find any, uh, which doesn't mean that they weren't there. That says as much about my looking <laughs> as it does what I was finding, but I couldn't find any. And I was really into this warriorship thing. And I found uh, Chogyam Trungpa's Sacred Path of the Warrior, and I loved it and was just all about it. And that led me to Naropa to take a class called The Sacred Heart of Sadness or The Genuine Heart of Sadness. Mm-hmm. The Genuine Heart of Sadness, Warriorship in Everyday Life. This must have been back around 1994, 1995, somewhere around in that time. And it, was, it said things like mudra space awareness, all kinds of just sounded fantastically interesting and juicy. And Sakyang Miyapam Rinpoche was going to be teaching it. That was Trungpa's son. Who better could you ask for? So I carried myself off to here, to Boulder, to Naropa. And as far as I remember, he was just getting out of his three-year meditation retreat. He was just coming out of a three-year meditation retreat to teach this class. So as far as I know, they didn't know what he was going to talk about. They really didn't know what this class was going to be. And I, did, I haven't had the chance to talk to him, but he just got back from a three-year meditation retreat. What do you think he's going to talk about? I would guess meditation. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, I'd never, I've never been introduced to meditation before. He said, we will sit for just the briefest time. And then we were sitting for 45 minutes. <laughs> well, I guess that would be brief to him huh? <laughs> after a three-year retreat. <laughs> he gave us some instruction. And I guess the, the poetry expression, which is not mine, but it's, an, and my heart broke open on the wind, right? When he began to, to teach, to transmit, meditation, my heart broke open on the wind. And then he said, so now we'll sit just, you know, for a little while and we'll we'll do this a couple of times a day. And we sat for three hours, three times a day. But uh, as far as I, as far as I know, and remember now many years since I've been in the lineage. So I apologize if I get some of this wrong, but in Zen, when you walk and when you sit is usually structured, you know, right? It's going to be series of 35 minutes and then 10 minutes walking or 45 minutes and 10 minutes walking or not. Whatever it is, you know, but in this style, you don't know. You're sitting for three hours and you'll walk twice in that three hours. When? It depends. For how long? It depends. And <laughs> Sakyang would determine that. So that was all I'd ever known. You know, like a little kid who has a particular culture in your family. And until you meet other kids with other families, you don't know it's any other way. So I thought three hours was a reasonable period of time to sit in meditation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that, that was my getting into it there. And then, I mean, if your heart breaks open on the wind, I just knew like, this is what I'm going to do. I wasn't ever really interested in a particular tradition. I was looking for a community. I was looking for a teacher, but I just knew I needed to be as open and as broad looking for anything that I could find. And at the time you're living, obviously not in Boulder. So 
where did you end up connecting with uh, Steve Hagen and that and the Dharma field? So I was living community. in Minneapolis. In Minneapolis, right? And there really is something to the three aspects of the practice: the wisdom, the meditation, and the ethics. And there's a way just of kind of taking that seriously, and then it takes you seriously. Or if you know you really love that, it begins to love back. Because I didn't necessarily intend it, but at the time I was very poor, didn't have a lot of money, and I got discounts and student sponsorship or whatever, pretty much everywhere I went. And then there was just, this isn't uh, for everyone. This is just, this is part of my own path. There was something in that about not really taking responsibility for living my life kind of expecting other people to kind of do that for me, take care of that for me. And I thought, you know, people do this, actually. People make their way in the world, they make a living, and they pay their bills, and they still have enough to go to a Dharma class or to whatever it is. I just wondered what was going on with my life that just that basic kind of everyday stability or organization was completely in disarray. And I thought... I really need to take a year out and just organize that, just really focus on that. So I did when I came back. And I got this flyer in the mail that had talked about dependent arising in the unlocatable self. It was a six-week course. And I'd been around enough to know two things, that it seemed like that was the heart of the matter, and anyone I talked to just sounded like Yoda when they said anything to me about it, right? And I would want somebody to say something to me about what that was. It would always just thrown back. What do you think it is? I don't know what the hell it is. That's why I'm asking you, <laughs> right? <laughs> Again, that said as much about me as it said about who I was interacting with. But at the time, there was no channel for any of that into my life. And I was almost despairing that anyone could say anything about it at all. And I thought, whoever's going to talk about that for six weeks has to be the most arrogant person I could ever meet. It's like two-hour classes. Who thinks that they can talk about that for two hours for six weeks? And I really wanted to meet that guy. You know, not to throw tomatoes, but it was just so fascinating. Like one of the seven wonders of the world, the dude who thinks he can do that. So I, I just wanted to meet him, took this year off, did this, and then tracked him down, contacted him, and showed up for his classes. It was nothing like I expected. It was everything that I needed. That was Steve Hagen. Yeah. Yeah. How soon after you met him did you decide to get more committed and actually take on monastic training? Because you'd mentioned you were doing monastic training for about five years. Is that right? Yeah, well, Rumi says lovers don't find each other. They're in each other all from the beginning. So like, when did I decide to do this? Sometime before I did it. <laughs> and not until later. Yeah. Both. But pretty much right away. Yeah. Pretty much like right in the in the, the first classes. And I just felt it was in the presence of a, a clarity, a fullness and a freedom. I didn't know what it was. I was just in the presence of it. And that wouldn't have been enough except for in that presence, in that living vitality, my own life was impacted. And I just wanted to hang out with that. I just wanted to be close to that. You know, you're all alone in the dark, shivering and freezing, and you find a fire, you might settle down there for a while. So I just settled down there. 
I checked in with him, like, do you, I mean, are you interested in having students? Do you have time to have students? Do you have energy to have students? Is this? And he did. So sign me up. Nice. I'm in. And was there an actual physical place that you ended up living? or was at, it- the, at the time, he, there was no official community. There was no name. There was no building. He was teaching out of Quaker meeting houses. Cool. So this must have been before he became a little this, more popular. This was before, yeah, Dharma Field was ever founded. Gotcha. Yeah, prior to that. And then Dharma Field was founded fairly quickly after that. Yeah, then I just moved in with that. Nice. So were you doing, during this period that you actually were in monastic training, were you, what was that like? What was like the day-to-day reality of that? Obviously, in the beginning, you didn't have a physical center. Was it, were you doing more kind of meditation practice? What, like, what was the, yeah, yeah, what was the day-to-day life like? Yeah. So it took me a while to put my life into the context of that activity. That was not an immediate thing. Kind of a feeling of commitment and aspiration and intention was immediate. But then putting myself into that context took a a bit of time. But then once it wasn't that context, once I was living in that way, you pretty much wake up at... um, depending on where you live in relationship to the center, you wake up between four and five in the morning and then you go to the center and you sit meditation. You do various things, uh, maybe a little bit of cleaning, you know, maybe a little bit of chanting, whatever, for over an hour and a half. And then you go right to work. Hmm. At least the way I did it is I would have to bring a change of clothes, change in the bathroom, and then get in the car and go right to work. And then you work your job, and you come back home, and you have a tiny bit of time, and you go back to the center. And then you're there all evening, sitting meditation, helping out, attending classes, you know, just teaching, study, practice, and care and maintenance of the center of the community. Then you go back home, and you might get to sleep If you went to sleep right away, you could get to sleep maybe by 10.30, but that was not me, so I got to sleep by 11 or midnight. Then you wake up at sometime between 4 and 5, and you do it all over again, five days a week. And then um, Saturday or Sunday was our community day, where we have kind of open to the public community services, and that's, you know, public talk, and then a lot of uh, community events and practice and study again. And then you have one day a week that's off buy groceries, do laundry, call your mom. So were you also doing periods of like sashin or anything like that Yeah. Uh, in addition to that? Yeah, that's, that's, that's the regular or the basic. And I think yeah. about every six weeks, there was either a two or three-day sashin. And then we periodically did uh, one-week sashins. And was everyone that was in your position in the training monastic position expected to be doing those each time? Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of had a working situation where you, it was understood, like, I'm going to be taking these times off to go do my monk thing, and <laughs> it was all good. Yeah. And you have to work that out. Everybody has to find a way to work that out. So I was originally working in bars and restaurants, which didn't really allow me to show up for the schedule in this way. Mm-hmm. So there was a very wild and interesting encounter for me. I'm not sure what your what it'll be for your listeners, but... The gentleman who built my parents' first house in River Falls, Wisconsin, was named Charles Cudd. And his son 
was my best friend in the world. Just loved that kid. And then a year later, they moved away. And I totally raged against the world on that. And very defiantly, I looked uh, Chuck's wife in the eyes and I said, you can take Charlie away from me, but you can never take him out of my heart. (laughs) All right. So um, they built my parents' house and totally terrified of that guy, by the way. Loved his son, terrified of him because we lived in a, a community where they just built these houses. For a little kid, that's just like jungle gyms going up everywhere. For an adult, that's like little kids imperiling their lives everywhere, right? Little kids in mortal danger all the time. So he was frightening in a compassionate way, trying to get the kids not to climb around and hurt themselves on the houses. But we were appropriately terrified of him. How does this work into my later job? I became a construction worker years and years later, living in Minneapolis. My name had been changed by that time. In Minneapolis, I saw these vans from time to time that said Charles Cut on them. And I just wondered, is that the same company that built my parents' house? So I'm training at this place, and there's a guy there whose name is Charles Cut, But that's not going to happen. As it turned out, that was the guy. And of course, it's like I was probably five or six, and by this time I'm uh, maybe 19, 20. So he didn't recognize me, and I just, we met all over again. And... He became like my adopted dad, and you know he was practicing Zen for a couple of years before I was, and he gave me a job as a construction worker. Crazy. And that, given that he was doing this whole thing for years before I was, and that he owned the business, that made it very easy to take time off. Nice. Hey, cool. So you basically were in the schedule, in and out, sleeping, you know, five, six hours a night, maybe less training a lot, helping with the community, doing sashins here and there for the whole period that you're monastic training, like five years? Yeah, mostly. Mo- yeah, more or less. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So at some point you left that. Yeah. Yeah. And Ryan kind of asked, you know, what was that about? And I, yeah. I'm interested too, yeah, like what changed or did you feel like you had gotten, weird way to phrase the question, but do you feel like you had gotten what you came there for? Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I understand the question, not yeah as the response to the, <laughs> to the question. So let me ask you guys a question first, because I feel like I laid out the nuts and bolts yeah. that we just talked about, Yeah, but I'm not sure it's that interesting yet. Okay. So, so let me just ask you guys, because I might be the only one who's slow here, <laughs> right? Like, I'm slow, but at least I'm stupid. What is that even about? You sleep like that, you practice like that, you work like that. What is that about? Mm-hmm. What is that life about? Yeah. Why do you do that in the first place? Yeah, what's the benefit? Yeah. That's kind of where I was going with the, did you get what you looked, I mean, did you find what you're looking for? Because if you didn't, you're probably pretty pissed. <laughs> awesome. I think about that when I'm on intensive retreat. I'm like practicing 10 hours a day and I'm like, I leave and I'm like, was that worth it? <laughs> yeah. 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 So I, yeah, I would be interested. Yeah, please. What is that about? <laughs> What do you guys think it's about? And just just to note, yeah, I hated it when people did this with me <laughs> to begin with. Sure, but, but you guys are you're Zen, dude. Oh, we can handle it. <laughs> we can do it. Yeah, yeah. I'll let Ryan answer first. <laughs> right. Well, I've never worked construction and then sat for like six hours a day. But no, it's like for me, anyways. It's to interrupt my sort of normal patterns. I would assume there's a difference in where you have it actually integrated that thoroughly in life. It's one thing to sit for like an hour a day, 
And it's one thing to go on a solitary retreat away from the whole world, but it seems completely different to be very intense with your practice and then also go like work at a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> like I was really surprised you said that you were doing that. You actually did work at a restaurant for part of this time, right? Or no? In the beginning, bars and restaurants was my that'd career. Be yeah. Oop, that'd, be, drop, that'd be rough. Yeah. <laughs> drop F-bombs on Buddhist geeks. But that would be insane for me. Uh, like I'm sitting all day and I'm going to go restaurant, take orders. I mean, when I came out of my solitary retreat and I just went to a restaurant, I was, I, it was just way insane. It was just so colorful and everything was so intense. So to be able to, to be bouncing back and forth from that every day would seem an intense and good experience. I think I can guarantee that the personalities of the construction workers would be just as colorful. <laughs> yeah, no, I, <laughs> I assume, yeah, there probably wouldn't be, but I suppose you get to work, you know, and you know, you kind of do mindful practice yeah, yeah. during that. So yeah, so I I haven't had that experience, but I would assume that would be something very interesting to be able to not just go out of the world or be in the world, but be both of those things at the same time. I've only experienced one or the other, really. So, yeah. 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 Yeah, there's something, when you're saying that, I, mean, I was thinking about all the things that I've read about Zen and my just brief encounters with it, with certain teachers sitting in a Zendo. And the teachers I've sat with are all, you know, it's every every moment is is what's important in Zen, I and mean, all these stories to illustrate that point. And I mean, there there definitely in the Zen tradition doesn't seem to be a huge disconnect between the world mm-hmm. and spiritual practice. Yeah. So it seems really obvious that if that's the emphasis, that they would structure something like that, so that you know, like you can't really escape yeah. uh, one or the other, and. Like Ryan, I haven't had that particular experience. I mean, I've certainly tried to engineer something like that for myself. And I remember also sitting, you know, a couple hours a day, going on retreats periodically and and waiting tables uh, four or five days a week, dealing with people that were completely, in some ways, seemed antithetical to the type of thing that I'd, I'd be exposed to at a retreat center or with my small community of friends I was practicing with. It was like completely different worlds. Yeah like having to hold both of those paradoxes simultaneously and going, what am I doing? (laughs) And yet they did seem to inform each other. I mean, certainly working allowed me to do the practice and to go on retreats. And so I was really grateful for that. And yet I'd come back from retreat and I would like forget an order. I'd be kind of out of it. And, you know, my manager would be like, Hey, we're not going to let you go on retreat anymore. If you come back and you're fucking orders up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, it seems to me like it would really challenge someone to find a way to make sense of both of those worlds. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I love that. Thank you. The particular form that we were using, and now we're talking about what is that about? And it's important to know what it's about because that's where you know if you want to use the same form or if you want to modify the form, maybe take a different form, but you go back to what is it about? And in in this way, it's kind of that if you think about going to a monastery, oftentimes you don't have to pay bills anymore. You don't have to worry about being laid off. Mm -hmm. You don't have to worry about... There's an ease that is allowed there, even though there's still, I know, tremendous facing of your own mind, right? Your own heart and the world that goes along with that. But there's still a lot of that that's taken off the plate. So it's different if you have to do that right in the middle of paying your bills, and right in the middle of having a job, right in the middle of relationships. And so that is kind of what that's about. And the, the really interesting thing for me there is your life and meditation. Life and meditation. We might say that these are not 
two different things, but they seem that way to begin with. Mm-hmm. And instead of having that be a problem to get rid of, can that actually be leveraged as the path that to begin with, we see it that way. Mm-hmm. There's said that there's what, 84,000 doors of the Dharma for every mind. This is one of the minds. But there's practice, there's meditation, and there's life. So the way that I see that that could be leveraged, the way that that could be the path itself, and the way that I think that this is kind of what that training that I was just talking about is, is about, is in the beginning, when we're meditating, the question is, do you really bring your life to meditation? When you sit down, have you included your life? Have you brought your life to that time and that period of meditation or not? Because oftentimes we sit down and the first thing that we find is our life. And the first thing we do is try to get rid of it. And then we complain about how lifeless our meditation is. (laughs) So that's actually the injunction here. That there is this practice of meditation and that we bring our life to that. We offer our life into the practice of meditation. It's very important. Into the actual practice of meditation, which we can talk more about perhaps. So there is the practice of meditation, but our life is offered to that. Our whole life, whatever it is. And then, see, because then the second movement is we can bring meditation back to our life. But if we've never brought our life into the meditation, We have no meditation to bring back into our life. So every morning, the life is pouring into the practice of meditation. And then through the middle of the day, the meditation is pouring back into life. And so there's this dynamic movement. And in that very dynamism of movement, those boundaries start to be transparent between life and between practice. If you never allow them to be that, dare I say, erotically embraced, life and meditation, life and practice, they have to stay as those kind of two discrete. But when you really bring them together in this way, when they're really allowed, they become one flesh, bone of my bone. So that's that's what that's about. And that's actually what the meditation does. The meditation is pulling, is sucking, is evoking our lives. Can we actually have the practice that knows how to be that, to presence that as it is, as it will be, right, in all of its dynamism, in all of its celebratory movement? Can we do that? Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, 
abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.